cyber criminals. Who on earth are they? Are they evil masterminds bent on world domination, or are they awkward teenagers in gloomy bedrooms? Could they possibly be people like me or you? It depends on what we mean by cybercrime, and it depends on who is asking. Popular culture tells us that the typical cybercriminal looks like this, and the eagle-eyed amongst you will recognise this as one of the images used to promote this lecture. One would hope that if we were to turn this person around, we might find out more about them. But no, as often as not, and as we explored in last year's lectures, cybercriminals are curiously faceless, techno-grim reapers. So this set me thinking, what could I do to uncover these faces for you? I have cases that I've worked on, but I'm not allowed to tell you about those. Well, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. How else, then, can we shed light on these evidently shady characters? We at least need some kind of starting point, a stereotype that we can either confirm or shoot down. Well, it's become very fashionable to use generative AI to produce content. So I asked DALI2, a model that generates images from natural language descriptions, to give me a typical cybercriminal. And this is what it generated. What do you think? In my opinion, this is a pretty good effort. It certainly seems to conform to the stereotype we see in movies and TV series, that of a young, white male. Now, I am not suggesting for a second that generative AI knows the answer to the question, what do cybercriminals look like? The chances are that young white guys in hoodies were prominent in the set of images used to train it. But at least now, we have a visual representation of our expectations as shaped by our exposure to mainstream media. The sensible, scientific next step would be to test this using good, solid data. But there is, I'm afraid, spoiler alert, no global database of cybercriminals, not even of those who have been caught. A further complication is that very often, evidence of a cybercrime is not easily linked to a human, at least not in the first instance. In that respect, it's unlike a murder investigation, where you can immediately interview people in the victim's family or their acquaintances. It's unlike an assault, where victim and eyewitness statements can help to identify a suspect. And it's unlike a burglary, where CCTV, fingerprints and even shoe prints can provide vital clues. In comparatively simple cases, like unauthorized access to a Facebook account, the available data 
doesn't directly identify a potential suspect. On screen is real data showing IP addresses and session cookies for a device logged into an account. An investigator can take those IP addresses to an internet provider or a mobile operator, and they can ask them to identify the account holder for that internet connection at that particular time. But without further investigation, they can't say who the likely offender is. Law enforcement cannot, or at least should not, go around simply arresting the person who pays the internet bill. When any number of people in a household or a business or an internet cafe might share that access. So in their quest to identify human suspects, analysts and investigators use a combination of technical clues and intelligence. For example, from criminal forums, where people do like to talk about themselves, hawk their wares and brag about their exploits. The more sophisticated cybercriminals are inevitably better at concealing their true identities. State-sponsored groups, or APTs, standing for Advanced Persistent Threat, they can operate for several years before any of their members are identified by name. In the meantime, groups are given alternative monikers, which are sometimes based on a numerical system starting at APT1. At others, on a taxonomy of animal species that's partly based on national associations. I've been musing on these classifications for some time now, and I'm not altogether convinced that they're entirely helpful. But let's see what you think, and let's again ask generative AI to help us visualize some of the world's most notorious cyber criminals. Well, first off, the rather dapper-looking character on the left is Dali 2's depiction of Fancy Bear, also known as APT28. This group's targets have reportedly included European governments, domestic political opponents of the Russian government, French television station TV5 Monde, the World Anti-Doping Agency, the US Democratic National Committee, and the Ukrainian military. And on the right is Cozy Bear, implicated in attacks on the US during the 2016 presidential elections, on the Norwegian and Dutch governments, and in the theft of government data related to COVID vaccines and treatments in several states. Both groups are believed to have close links with or to be employees of Russia's foreign intelligence service, the SVR. Next up, do we have any guesses for these two? Thinking of animals, national associations? Yes, indeed. They are two faces of Chinese cybercrime. So allow me to introduce you to Vertigo Panda, aka Red Delta a state-sponsored group believed to be behind attacks on the Vatican and the Catholic Church in Hong Kong. And as I'm sure will be obvious from the buoyancy aid, on the right is Aquatic Panda, 
aka Earth Lusker and Red Dev 10, known for its attacks on a range of organizations of interest to the Chinese government, but also on cryptocurrency payment platforms and exchanges. At this point, it all starts to get rather tenuous. Here we have Dali 2's depictions of Cosmic Wolf, a group that reportedly conducts targeted attacks in support of Turkish state intelligence gathering, and my personal favorite, an Iranian hacktivist group known to the cybersecurity community as Frontline Jackal. You can see, can't you, how generative AI came up with this particular image. Now, these naming conventions came about as a practical workaround, a means for defenders and investigators to refer to cyber criminals prior to their identification as individuals. But I would argue that styling them as fantastic beasts mythologizes them. It presents, prevents us from getting the measure of them as humans. It bestows on cybercriminals precisely the kind of kudos many of them seek, unless, of course, they are unfortunate enough to be in the crack Iranian unit known as Banished Kitten. <laughs> Over time, law enforcement can get closer to identifying individual members of these groups. And the international dimension of cybercrime the extent to which offenders are very often in a different country to their victims is evident in some lists of persons of interest. Now, this is the FBI's Cyber Most Wanted list, and it's publicly available on the internet. And this names 15 suspected members of that Russian group, Fancy Bear. And these three North Korean nationals are believed to be members of Stardust Cholimer, aka APT38. They're popularly known, and you will probably know them, as the Lazarus Group. In case you're wondering, because I certainly did, a Cholimer is a mythical winged horse, rather like Pegasus. Lazarus has been active since at least 2009. It's believed to be behind the hack of Sony Pictures in 2014, the theft in 2016 of close to a billion US dollars from the Central Bank of Bangladesh, and the 2017 WannaCry global ransomware attacks that impacted the UK National Health Service, among others. When we review all of these mugshots on the FBI's website, we can see that ethnically, they're quite diverse. Not necessarily, however, in other respects, which we will come to shortly. So how does this compare with national statistics on people who make it to court? Here in the UK, the Ministry of Justice publishes statistical data on criminal prosecutions in England and Wales under the Computer Misuse Act. And this covers unauthorised access to computer material, that is, hacking and interference, but also writing and selling tools to help cybercriminals. 
And when we look at the data for the last three years, we see that 85% of defendants are white, which is not too far off their 82% representation in the UK population as a whole. This is, however, quite a small data set of just 441 prosecutions. And there are so many things it doesn't tell us. It tells us nothing at all about the cybercriminals who get away with it. And inevitably, it tells us nothing about cybercriminals in the rest of the world. Rather frustratingly for us researchers, many countries simply don't publish criminal justice statistics for cybercrime. And in their absence, law enforcement operations can be quite informative. What we tend to find is that press releases from law enforcement in other countries mostly feature their own nationals. And the images you see on screen here are taken from the Facebook page of the cybercrime unit in Côte d'Ivoire. Most, if not all, of those arrested are Ivorian. Why is this? Why don't we see the ethnic diversity so evident on the FBI's most wanted list? It's largely a question of jurisdiction. Law enforcement has the authority primarily to pursue criminals who are physically located within their national borders. So if there is a suspect in another country, it's often more practical to pass the information to the authorities there so that they can arrest and prosecute. Extraditions do happen, but rarely. And they are even less likely when the suspect is working for the government. Consequently, Many wanted cybercriminals are destined to remain just that. Now, you may have noticed that not a single one of the 119 individuals on the FBI's list appeared to be female. What could account for the complete absence of half the world's population from the ranks of the world's most sought-after cybercriminals? As you can see, women represent 12% of cybercrime offenders in the criminal justice data set for England and Wales. And it may be tempting to see this as confirming the belief of some that they are simply less technical than men. Leaving aside the extent to which the assumption of technical incapability can actually exclude girls from an education in STEM subjects, that's a, a, a discussion for another time, perhaps, or the question and answer session afterwards, this explanation ignores several other possible factors, among them an increased likelihood that state-sponsored cybercriminals either work or have worked for the military, and a hypothesis that links male dominance of cybercrime to a higher prevalence of autism. When we look to other less technical online offences for comparison, such as trolling and hate speech under the Malicious Communications Act, we see a similar gender distribution, although I should state that this is a smaller data set of just 153 prosecutions in those three years. And I should also clarify that the data here 
currently provides for only two genders. In England and Wales, between a fifth and a quarter of all people in the criminal justice system are women. And this suggests that there may be other factors at play here than technical skill alone. And just because women are not dominant in cybercrime, that doesn't mean that they are absent. People who identify as women do write malicious software, as demonstrated by the conviction of Ala Vitter in the top left here for creating the TrickBot banking trojan and ransomware suite. They do gain unauthorized access. Paige Thompson, top right, was found to have compromised an Amazon web server containing the data of 100 million Capital One customers. They've also been active in ensuring that cybercrime pays. Kristina Svechinskaya, bottom left, as a money mule for a group operating the Zeus banking trojan. And in July of this year, Heather Morgan, in the bottom right, a.k.a. the rapper Razzle Khan, pleaded guilty to money laundering and conspiracy to defraud the United States for her part in the hack of four and a half billion US dollars worth of Bitcoin from a cryptocurrency exchange. Then we have Bulgarian national Ruzha Ignatova, a.k.a. Crypto Queen. She may not have made it onto the FBI's cyber most wanted, but she is in its top 10 of most wanted fugitives for her alleged participation in the fraudulent OneCoin cryptocurrency scheme that resulted in investors all over the world losing billions of dollars. In the cybercriminal ecosystem, the people who can dupe victims and turn data into hard cash are not bit players. They are central to the business model. Researchers at cybersecurity firm Trend Micro analysed visits and posts to five English language and five Russian language cybercriminal forums. They used marketing tools and textual analysis, and they found that around 40% of visitors and 30% of active participants were women. They advertised their services, and they talk about their exploits, just as the male contributors do. So this prompts us to consider further intriguing questions. How are we to explain the gap between female representation in the cybercriminal ecosystem and criminal justice statistics? Are UK women simply less present in the 10 forums that were analysed by Trend Micro? It's possible. Might women show up less frequently in criminal justice data because they're less likely to get caught? We shouldn't rule it out at this stage. It may be the case that women are more successful cybercriminals, better at avoiding law enforcement detection. Could it be that law enforcement doesn't catch many women because it's not expecting to find them? We would need a lot of additional data in order to answer any of these 
with any level of confidence. At the moment, I'm afraid, we just don't know. What about the third attribute of the stereotype of the young white male? Popular culture does tend to associate technical ability with youth. Hackers are often portrayed on screen as boyish whiz kids, younger in years and less mature than other underground types. So we may be surprised to find that under-18s represent just 3% of cybercrime defendants in England and Wales. Now, the way the Ministry of Justice sets the age ranges here is a little misleading. As you might be able to see, they're not all the same length in years. In fact, the largest proportion of those prosecuted for computer misuse offences in blue are actually in their 20s. It's those two here, adding up to 35%. You may also be able to see that there is no one in the data who is under 15. The age of criminal responsibility in England and Wales is just 10. It's among the lowest in the world. The complete absence of 10 to 14-year-olds here would suggest either that they aren't coming to the attention of law enforcement or that any charges against them do not go to court. And to that end, offenders who are under 18 may be given a youth caution for a first offence. Having said all of that, when we add malicious communications offences to the mix here in orange, we can see that prosecutions for the more technical cybercrime offences do appear to have something of a younger demographic than those for cyber-enabled trolling and hate offences. That tiny blue block towards the far right of the chart, just before the final orange one, that represents just one offender in the 60 to 69 age range, and we don't have any 70-plus for cybercrime. Earlier, I used the phrase business model, which rather suggests, doesn't it, that all cybercrime is motivated by financial gain. We might assume, for instance, that organised crime is driven by profit, governments and hacktivists by ideology, and teen hackers by the esteem and satisfaction that comes from beating a system that is designed to keep them out. In reality, it's not always that clear-cut. A court in the UK recently heard how two teenage boys, both diagnosed autistic, were part of the lapsus international gang of cybercriminals. The elder of the two gained access to servers belonging to telecoms company BT and mobile operator EE, and he demanded a ransom of four million US dollars on pain of deleting the data. The boys also stole close to a hundred thousand pounds from a number of cryptocurrency accounts. The prosecution cited, quote, a juvenile desire to stick two fingers up to those they were attacking. But clearly, the prospect of huge sums of money was something of a draw. We've also seen state-sponsored cybercriminals using ransomware to extort money. 
North Korea reportedly uses this business model to fund its espionage operations and its nuclear weapons proliferation. The Bank of Korea in Seoul estimates that in 2020, Pyongyang derived 8% of its GDP from cybercrime. So just think, if you've ever paid a ransom to cybercriminals, you could have chipped in for a missile for Kim Jong-un. One would naturally expect the spread of fake news and disinformation to have purely political objectives. Government agencies who want to influence the outcome of an election or sow discord in a community may well be ideologically motivated, but the grunt work of spreading false information is often outsourced to private companies and individuals whose motivation is financial. When the Russian government wanted to spread fake news during the 2016 US presidential campaign to the effect that the Pope was backing Trump, that Hillary Clinton had sold arms to ISIS, and that Michelle Obama was a man, they reportedly paid young people in North Macedonia to do it. The town of Veles, there that you can see highlighted, southeast of the capital Skopje, has since become synonymous with the disinformation industry. Speaking to Channel 4 News in 2016, a 16-year-old contractor said he was doing it out of boredom and because there wasn't much for kids to do around there. In 2018, another explained to France 24 that creating fake news websites allowed him to buy some new trainers, sneakers for our international audience, and to go on holiday to Greece. Now, in my lectures last year, we explored how cybercrime can be prevented through digital hygiene measures, the basic steps members of the public can take to protect themselves their friends and family, their businesses, and the wider community. And we considered how the sheer scale of cybercrime, its international reach, and its pervasiveness in society make it a suitable um, public health response with a focus on prevention at a population level, but also targeted interventions for at-risk and affected groups. In order to counteract cybercrime effectively, what we need to do is engage not only potential victims, but also potential offenders, and to understand that their motivations are several, not confined to a particular demographic, and not always distinct. We can't always say with confidence that a cybercriminal is motivated solely by money or ideology or kudos. Timing is also key. Some government programs seek to raise awareness among young people that hacking is illegal. Others seek to harness their abilities and their need for achievement for good for which read, government-approved activity. These initiatives depend on diverting young people before they commit a crime that comes to the attention of law enforcement. 
and to ensure that they follow the path of the white hat instead of going over to the dark side with the black hats. But once an individual has been convicted of an offence, it can be challenging legally and practically to integrate them into the cybersecurity workforce. And this means that the very people who can be of most use to a company or a country are often those who have previously been identified as a threat. Equally, there are cybercriminals whose motivations don't quite fit the archetypes. Um, this is generative AI's depiction of insider threat. And it's fair to say, if you look closely, um, there are a few things that are not quite right with this image. Perhaps the most obvious and unnerving being the two neckties, one of which is protruding directly from the subject's flesh. Now, insider threat can present itself in a number of different ways. Career cybercriminals may apply for jobs at organisations that they wish to infiltrate. Existing employees may go rogue because they have money troubles or a grievance or both. Well-meaning employees may fall for phishing attacks and social engineering. Because it can take time to establish whether a breach is accidental or deliberate, some cybersecurity specialists prefer to see all employees as potential threats until proven otherwise. We are all then, to some degree, under suspicion. Everything we've considered so far presumes that people engage in cybercrime willingly, albeit not always wittingly. But the last few years have seen the emergence of a new criminal business model in which people from East Africa, the Middle East and South America have been deceived into travelling to Southeast Asia where they are then forced to work as online scammers. According to the United Nations, this bears all the hallmarks of human trafficking. And the UN estimates that 120,000 people in Myanmar and a further 100,000 in Cambodia are currently being forced to work in this way. Are these people cybercriminals or trafficking victims? Or are they both? Should they be prosecuted or rescued? Duress under threat of death or serious injury is a recognised offence in a court of law. But how should society treat cybercriminals who are economic captives? It can also happen that people who are motivated by ideology do not consider themselves to be criminals, even while they may actively engage in stealing data, disabling digital services, and interfering with communications. You may recall that in 2013, Edward Snowden removed and leaked highly classified information from the US National Security Agency about its online surveillance operations. Whether you think he is a dangerous criminal or a public servant depends to some extent on your personal evaluation of the trustworthiness of governments. But what about 
where many thousands of otherwise law-abiding citizens participate in cyber attacks because they believe it's the right thing to do. People from all over the world have joined the volunteer IT army of Ukraine. Its Telegram channel boasts a quarter of a million subscribers. And a bilingual website provides attack instructions, suggested targets, command tools, and bots for distributed denial of service attacks aimed at disabling Russian government infrastructure. Several governments have warned their citizens against getting involved because there is no legal protection for civilians who conduct cyber attacks, even if the cause is widely held to be just. Cybercrime is cybercrime is cybercrime. Or is it? In the first lecture of last year's series, Who Owns the Internet?, we discovered that definitions of what constitutes cybercrime can differ from one country to another. In the ongoing negotiations for a UN cybercrime treaty, several states have proposed that certain types of speech be criminalized worldwide. Belarus, Burundi, China, Nicaragua, Russia and Tajikistan want to outlaw, quote, the distribution of materials that call for illegal acts motivated by political, ideological, social, racial, ethnic or religious hatred or enmity, advocacy and justification of such actions or to provide access to such materials by means of ICT. Egypt has called for criminalization of the spreading of strife, sedition, hatred or racism. Jordan hate speech or actions related to the insulting of religions or states using information networks or websites. With such elastic terms as enmity, strife and insult, there is a risk that many more of us could be branded cyber criminals in the not-too-distant future, simply for expressing our political views or criticizing someone in authority. Balances need to be struck carefully between, on the one hand, minimizing the use of IT to incite physical harm, and, on the other, ensuring that our freedoms of speech and assembly are not unduly restricted. So, are we all cybercriminals now? We clearly don't all commit technically sophisticated offences on a regular basis, but an appreciable minority of us actively bend the rules and even break the law when using IT. A survey conducted by Forbes found that 42% of respondents used their work virtual private networks to bypass geographical restrictions on streaming services. You know who you are. Extensive sharing of passwords led to Netflix changing its policy in an effort to combat mass freeloading. In a 2021 survey of nearly 8,000 European youths aged 16 to 19, one in eight reported engaging in money-mueling or laundering. 
the same proportion in online harassment. One in ten in hate speech, hacking and cyberbullying, respectively. And one in eleven for each of phishing, non-consensual sharing of intimate images, online fraud and identity theft. The signs are, then, that the cybercriminal population is diverse. It spans all age groups, all ethnicities, and all genders. At the same time, not all cybercriminals are stereotypical geeks. Not all are driven by a lust for profit, an extreme ideology, or devotion to a motherland. This matters for several reasons. A diverse population demands a range of prevention, disruption, and enforcement measures. Someone who is motivated by an extreme ideology may require de-radicalization to desist from offending, while someone who is driven into criminality by poverty may be better served by alternative employment opportunities. A deeper appreciation of cybercriminal demographics and criminogenic factors should result in better defence and better enforcement. The assumption that cybercriminals are male may well reflect male dominance in the cybersecurity industry and in law enforcement cybercrime units. It may also lead to missed opportunities to profile suspects and defend against them effectively. Here, too, we really do need more data. But it's reasonable to infer that the more representative they are of the offender population, the better the insights and responses defenders can provide. Now, you'll be unsurprised to hear that there is growing concern about cybercriminal misuse of artificial intelligence. And yes, this is what Dali 2 generated when I asked it for a robot cybercriminal. Still wearing a hoodie, you notice. Cyber attacks are already automated to some degree. Automation is what enables scammers to target many thousands of victims at once. And criminals can already use ChatGPT to generate scam marketing content and code. Tools that scan for vulnerabilities in networks and systems remove the need for a human to do so manually. And they enable tasks to be completed more quickly and at scale. The potential for AI-powered self-learning malware has been recognised, but so far, September 2023, in case you're listening after the fact, we haven't seen it in the wild. At some point, we may need to entertain the prospect of machines as bad actors, cyber criminals in their own right, which will then prompt some interesting legal questions. Among them, if AI commits a criminal offence and it is ostensibly autonomous, is it criminally responsible? Or would the authorities always pursue a natural person for creating it and deploying it? Would we need to prove that that human had knowledge of AI's criminality? 
Or would we hold the human responsible simply because the offence happened on their watch, much as we do CEOs for the misdemeanours of their employees? As the images generated for this lecture demonstrate, I think we have a way to go yet. For the time being, at least, there is still a person behind every cybercrime, a human operator. Understanding their thoroughly human attributes and impulses is challenging because we don't have those large international data sets that we would need to match the huge scale and the global reach of the crime. What we're able to glean from national data, research with limited sample sizes and media coverage provides an incomplete picture, but also some fascinating insights that can test our assumptions. And it sets us thinking about how the cybercriminal population might evolve in the future. The cybercriminals we know are getting older. The hackers and social engineers of the 70s and 80s are already dying out. And if indeed it is the case that a large number of cyber criminals are motivated by the challenge of gaining unauthorized access to data and systems, well then we shouldn't necessarily expect them to hang up their black hats as soon as they reach the national retirement age. Not least because they don't have workplace pension schemes. So we should probably prepare ourselves for a larger number of computer misuse offenders over 60 years of age than that lonely one that we saw earlier. When we look at cybercriminal demographics and motivations, we're forced to conclude that keeping an open mind and continuing to question that stereotype of the young white male gives us a better chance, not only of preventing as many people as possible from becoming offenders, but also of stopping them re-offending. And as digital technology presents us with a plethora of temptations to misuse it, as governments increasingly seek to define cybercrime as any misuse of IT, there is a real risk that even more of us will be cybercriminals. Hoodies, of course, will always be compulsory. But the world's most notorious cyber outlaw could turn out to be an elderly woman, perhaps even a middle-aged one. Imagine that. Thank you very much. Right, I have a couple of questions oh. online. I'm, I'm so glad you're Fantastic. taking. I'm so glad you're taking these questions, not me. Um, now, are there any? St Martin asks, are there any statistics on accidental cyber criminals, i.e., the prevalence of people without malintent being taken to court for cyber crimes? So the short answer is statistics, no. <laughs> um, Perhaps information. Uh, case studies. Do such certainly. people exist? Um, so I think where we have that insider threat is really where we see, you know, most opportunity for that to happen. Um, we also have, you know, when I think about high-profile prosecutions across national borders, 
for um, people with autism, that's not accidental necessarily, but the, the extent to which you can say that someone mm -hmm. um, exerted their own impulse control, made an informed decision to commit a crime, is called into question, and is frequently called into question in courts of law. Um, I'd love to find some statistics on accidental. I think one of the problems we have with that is responsible breach disclosure. So a lot of the time, if a company is breached and that's happened unwittingly or because someone's been tricked, that will stay in-house or, in the UK, it will be reported to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, but you wouldn't necessarily have that person named and shamed um, in the public. Because um, from my perspective, what I want to do is, is encourage a responsible culture where people feel it's safe to come forward yeah. and say, I'm really sorry I clicked on that email. I know I wasn't supposed to, but it, you know, I thought it was from my boss, etc. So statistics, not necessarily. We do have a few cases. People tend, I would like to think, in democratic countries not to go for prison for things that they've done by accident in the cybercrime world. But I'm not ruling it out. Mm. Yeah, there's a PhD thesis waiting yeah, to be written Yeah, absolutely, there, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, oh, good Lord, suddenly we've got millions of questions. Um, this person is interested in what can be done about state-sponsored... Uh, I'm paraphrasing the question here because it's rather long, but what can be done about state actors? <gasps> Gosh, at what level? I'll try and I break mean, is it there, down. Is there any hope is, for yeah. dealing with... Um, uh, right, goodness. Cyber criminals who are essentially shielded by the state. I'm, I'm going to try and break this down in a number of levels, but try and do it as quickly as possible. So apologies if we fly through this, okay? Um, so um, if you came to see my um, fake news lecture last year, then you'll know a little bit about this. If you didn't, then please listen to it. it I thought it was quite good. Um, and where we talk about state-on-state -state influence operations and disinformation campaigns. Um, and I think the short answer is there will always be espionage. Even quote-unquote good countries like the US hack German chancellor's phones and things like that, allegedly. Um, so, you know, espionage isn't going to go away anytime soon. Propaganda isn't going to go away anytime soon. But what we saw, certainly around 2016, with those influence operations, those disinformation campaigns, is that you and I became the front line of that. Because when we fell for it, and when we shared those posts about Michelle Obama being a man, etc., um, we were doing their work for them. We were sharing, we were becoming part of the machine. So for all of us in this room and listening at home, the thing we can do is we can, by keeping ourselves safe and secure online and you know, going through those basic digital hygiene measures that I outlined last year um, by you know, not becoming a victim of ransomware, etc. You know, we're actually starving North Korea of revenue. That feels pretty cool to me. So you know, that's, that's the front line. Then there is, of course, the diplomatic aspect of this. And I said, didn't I, that extraditions happen very rarely. They do happen. But they happen between countries like the UK and the US that already work with each other. One of the reasons why there are still so many people on the FBI's most wanted list is that the prospect of Russia and China and North Korea turning around and going, actually, you can have those guys, we'll send them over to you and you can lock them in prison, are very, very slim. 
But what we do sometimes have, also in the context of the UN Cybercrime Treaty, is people negotiating and navigating around each other to come to an agreement about how they deal with state-sponsored attacks, because state-sponsored attacks are a problem for everybody. It's not just Russia and China doing it. It's the IT army of Ukraine, you know, kind of getting all these volunteers. Everybody's at it. Nobody wants it. But it's a little bit like brinkmanship. And, I mean, one of the problems is, of course, scale, I imagine. You know, when a state gets involved in some, some of those numbers seem very large to me, large numbers of bad actors. There's a question here which I think is rather interesting, which asks you to talk a little bit about Bellingcat and or citizen investigation of cybercrime, because presumably that's a way you can get scale of investigation on the other side. Is that a realistic uh, Oh, prospect? yes. So, um, if anyone is sitting in here and sitting at home thinking, I'd like to become a civilian cybercrime investigator, I've had to have this conversation with my mum. She's the daughter of a police officer. She's very, very good at open source investigation. But I've had to say to her, no, stop it. Right? Because as I pointed out with the IT army of Ukraine, unless you work for law enforcement, unless you work for the government, um, it's a little bit like the accidental question. You don't have any legal protection to do this. What you can do is look into information that everybody can access publicly, and that's where Bellingcat, I think, has been absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic. Um, so you can do that, and there are some operational security tools that I would recommend everybody uses, like virtual private networks, to mask your IP addresses, mask your identities, so that you can do that safely without being outed or doxed, to use cyber uh, terminology yourself, because it's not fun being outed as somebody who does these kind of investigations. Um, what I would advise you against doing is setting up fake profiles to go and pretend to be somebody else, to go and interact with criminals. Um, you know, <laughs> people do do this, and, and for really, really good reasons, and they mean very, very well. Um, but you can suddenly find yourself in a space where you're, having, you're being forced to commit criminal, you know, criminal offences, and I don't want you to be in that situation. Um, what I do think is that Bellingcat and others have been fantastically useful in getting some of this data out. And I think one of the things we've started to see as well um, is you know, more technical means of scraping data that help us understand um, cyber criminal forums a lot better. Um, but scraping data, I mean, we've talked about this before, scraping data is good when the good guys do it, and scraping data is not great when the bad guys do it. So, double-edged sword, as ever. So, for, I've got loads of questions here, which is great. <laughs> so, you mentioned forums, uh, and um, this question says that there are many forums on the internet full of cyber criminals, and they're not trying to hide themselves. Why do you think that no action is taken about the forums, I think not the crimes, but the, yeah. the, the chat yeah. between them. So you've got, I mean, we... Stop the chat, stop the crime. And, and I think part of the problem is we talk about the dark web as a single thing, but actually, you know, the, the, the person asking this question is absolutely right. There are spaces where people are saying, I've got credit card details, and who would like to buy them? And you can just go and look at that, and it's quite scary. Um, scale is one thing. We've mentioned scale. There is so much cybercrime that 
ordinary law enforcement agencies will struggle to deal with it. So we need technical means to deal with that. That's why, when we've talked about cybersecurity before, that's why cybersecurity companies and vendors get so involved in threat intelligence, because they have resources that law enforcement doesn't. So scale is certainly one aspect of that. Um, I think it's also the international dimension again. Um, so if you think about a, a website where people will paste a load of stolen data or say, I write malware, would anybody like to hire me? And actually that trend micro report that I mentioned is just one of, you know, those, those forums are exactly that. People even pro post profile photos of themselves and they have certain badges about, you know, things they can do. I can write ransomware, etc. Um, the, People who've got their own photos up. On. Yeah. Well, you should have a look at that gender report. It's, fan it's fantastic. It's almost like um, top Trump's cards. They're really sticking two fingers up to law enforcement when you do that, aren't they? Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. And, and so the international dimension of this is, is really tricky. I mentioned five of those forums are Russian language, so they're probably in Russia or Belarus or somewhere, you know, uh, Russian-speaking. Um, and, you know, the prospects of UK or US law enforcement dealing with those are quite limited. What they can do is they can work with the hosting companies, if they're legitimate hosting companies, to get the websites taken down. But, you know, um, the bad guys learnt from this quite a long time ago and they set up their own criminal hosting networks. This is going back almost 20 years. So, you, you know, you have things like bulletproof hosting, which is designed to be safe from law enforcement. So it is that cat and mouse game of every time we develop a solution to deal with a problem, there's a workaround that the bad guys do. Mm. It's not hopeless, but it does mean that you know, law enforcement is constantly having to play catch-up. And there's a related question here which says, and why is it taking so long for the, pl the platforms to take responsibility? I'm not quite sure what is meant by the platforms, but possibly it's Facebook and the... the, the Okay. Yeah. yeah, and it, it depends. Responsibility for what, I suppose, would I mean, be my, you know, my, but let's, let's try and break well, so that the, down yeah, a bit. Yeah, so the first question, I guess, is are those platforms a major source of communication between hackers or cyber criminals? Um, so it depends whether you're talking about technical cyber criminals or cyber enabled crime. Mm -hmm. And it varies a great deal from platform to platform. Um, so if we're thinking about dark web forums, quite often they're not indexed by Google, so you wouldn't necessarily stumble across them in a, in a, in a Google search. Um, but, you know, some of the most um, persistent techniques for criminals of all flavours to communicate with each other is to just use web-based email like we do, um, but rather than sending an email, saving a draft email in your drafts folder, which means it's not intercepted in transit, it stays in your email drafts folder. So that's quite low tech, isn't it? It seems quite lo-fi, but some of those things still occur. So um, at the same so time... They share the address and they all log yeah, into the Yeah, and you just account. log into the same account. Okay. At the same time, um, there were services like EncroChat, that criminals developed themselves to be an encrypted messaging system because they didn't trust that WhatsApp, as soon as it was bought by now Meta, as was Facebook, that it would still be secure for criminals. So there are, you know, specifically criminal-designed communication systems. Um, 
I mean, with something with a service like Facebook, um, it depends whether you're talking about frauds, counterfeits, child abuse. If we're looking narrowly at cybercrime, um, really that's where the victim pool is, yeah. is on social media. Um, more sophisticated cyber criminals will tend to keep themselves in proprietary spaces. So that coordination tends not to happen, I would say, so much on mainstream platforms. Um, but we're there, and we're rich pickings if we don't protect ourselves. Right. So as an attack platform, a place where they can be attacked, yeah. it, it remains a problem. Yeah. And I didn't quite tease out of you whether they were being too slow or, or not. I mean, that was the um, nub of the question, I think. I think that's a really, really difficult one to answer. And not simply because, for those of you who don't know me, I did used to work for Facebook in their law enforcement liaison quite a few years ago. And what I saw was that they were doing a lot, and I, and I was part of that, you know, working with law enforcement cybercrime units. Um, but with, you know... However many, I think we had two billion users at the time. Mm -hmm. Developing tools at scale meant that you had to have automated solutions. There, weren't, there literally weren't enough people in the world to work those queues to keep people safe on those platforms. Which raises another question of, well, are some of these platforms just too big to be safe? That's a philosophical question, I think, that yeah. it might take a little bit longer to answer. But it's, it's challenging, and I think the short answer is that it's, they must and they should always do more and whatever they possibly can. I'm going to sneak in one more. Yeah, That's all it. right. Yeah, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot. To what extent has our culture of immediacy facilitated cybercrime? Should we just slow down and introduce more air gap systems? Yes. You can see why, you can see yes. why I picked that as the final question, can't <laughs> you? That's a fantastic question, yeah. whoever, whoever asked that. Yes, absolutely. Right. Um, so, as you know, I'm, I'm quite a fan of looking at social engineering and the, and the psychological and the emotional side of that. You know, what do most scams have in common? They say to you, you have won a massive prize. You have five seconds to claim it. <laughs> what, so it's really heightening that sense of urgency. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, our use of technology that is, to a certain extent, promoting a, a, a feedback loop of instant gratification. I think we should, you know, that we keep ourselves safe by going, oh, that doesn't look quite right. I'll just put that down and go and make a cup of tea and come back. And if the free iPad offer is no longer there, ah, oh, well, it's gone. Now, when we talk about the metaverse and when we talk about um, things like heads-up displays and displays that are delivered in our line of sight rather than on a screen at arm's length, we may have a bit of a problem with air gapping. Because if something, if a piece of fake news or an offer is displayed here and it runs as a ticker tape in front of your eyes or in the air, you don't have that opportunity to have that same critical, physical critical distance. Um, and I wonder what we're going to need to develop as the human race to make sure that we still have that emotional air gap Interesting, yeah. Yeah, we need without having to take everything off. We need slow IT, don't we? Slower right. IT. <laughs> Time is pressing uh, upon us. Well, and on the topic of immediacy, well, that was actually, for me, instant gratification. So, uh, Victoria, thank you very much. Thank you.